Welcome to FinTech in the Cloud with AWS, your direct line to the founders, investors, and startups who are shaping the ever-evolving world of FinTech. I'm your host, Sakai Damanga. On this episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Barbara Iyayi, CEO and founding partner at Unicorn Growth Capital. Unicorn Growth Capital is an early-stage Web3 VC fund that invests in future of finance, bridging trade buy and DeFi to foster more inclusive economies, specifically in Africa. Unicorn Growth backs Web 2.5-3.0 companies, providing fintech and DeFi infrastructure across industries and uniquely helps them scale in markets with high crypto adoption. On this episode, Barbara gives us a glimpse of some of the emerging crypto and DeFi trends in Africa and why she thinks Africa has the most lucrative opportunity for fintech, DeFi, and Web3. Enjoy. Barbara, welcome. Thank you for having me. Yeah, no, thank you so much. Thank you for being on the podcast. We're so excited to have you on. One of the ways we like to start off is really understanding your background and your journey in fintech. You have a pretty interesting journey, which I've followed for some time now. And I think it's worth spending a few minutes on and how you got to be the founding partner at Unicorn Growth Capital. So maybe can we spend some time to understand just your background and how you got here pre-Unicorn Growth Capital? I'm originally from Nigeria, but I was born in Chicago in the U.S., I lived in Nigeria for most of my life. And then I also lived in England. And then I moved to New York to attend Columbia University. And I studied electrical engineering and computer science. My father was a banker. So I always knew I wanted to get into financial services. And so that's why when I graduated, I went straight into working at JP Morgan. And then I did my investment banking. I did investment banking after business school and really spent a lot of time in finance. And it was through finance that I really got excited about fintech. So one of the key opportunities I got that really exposed me to fintech was when I was part of setting up a financial services investments platform, which was listed on the London Stock Exchange. We raised institutional capital to invest in financial institutions across Africa. Our goal was to build an alternative to the traditional financial services model. So build a platform with capital that can provide liquidity, that can really drive financial inclusion. And through that experience, as I essentially bought banks, invested in them and built teams around them, I noticed that fintech was really what was driving the innovations in that industry. And I started working with a lot of interesting fintech founders and I built a fintech strategy for the bank. One of the things we did was actually build a digital bank in Rwanda, one of the countries that we invested in, acquired a commercial banking license, put assets in there and built a technology strategy around that bank. And that's really what got me into fintech. And then I decided through that experience that I want to go into venture capital because that's where I really saw the ecosystem developing. Founders were building companies from scratch innovative companies. And I saw that venture capital was where I could really sort of start getting involved in these innovations and backing these founders and helping them grow. So I took a venture capital role and I also took an operating role in a technology company. And the technology company was to build a digital identity platform for financial institutions, healthcare, government agencies. Essentially, it was an AI-powered 
biometrics platform that can be used for authentication and KYC. And that's obviously a big foundation for financial services and fintech. Through these experiences is where I decided from my operating experience across all these different regions and my investing experience and through my network of founders, I noticed that it was important for me to set up a fund and start backing founders and being helpful to them and helping them scale. And so that's where Unicorn Growth Capital formed. Really interesting. Thanks for giving us some of the background in terms of how you got into fintech. It's an interesting juxtaposition with the engineering, which has some tech components to it. And then you're getting into the whole traditional financial ecosystem without probably thinking about it. You already were setting yourself up for fintech before you probably even knew it. But I'm curious to know a little bit more about Unicorn Growth Capital. What inspired you to start it? Clearly, you have a passion, but I'm curious to know what inspired it and also the name. I mean, it's self-explanatory, but what made you decide on Unicorn Growth Capital? I think one was about scale. One of the key struggles I see founders face in Africa, and it's the nature of the African continent, right? 54 countries, very different cultures, different regions, different regulatory regimes. And I saw a lot of founders struggle with scaling across the continent. And one of the key things that I was involved in was being part of building this platform across Africa and being able to work across different regions. And I do think that's a very important skill set to have. And I don't think a lot of people have that. And so unicorn growth was really about the concept of driving that unicorn growth amongst companies scaling in these regions. How can we turbocharge your growth? How can we make you scale and across different markets? And that attitude and that sort of scalability with respect to your business model, your platform that you're building, your organizational structure is really what we're looking for and what we enhance when we invest in companies. And I think that's the next phase of the ecosystem, essentially, is how do we now start scaling these companies and becoming big regional champions and leaders in our economies. So that's really the vision of Unicorn Growth. And to some extent, I do feel like being a Black female fund manager is a unicorn in itself. (laughs) Right. Um, Just building this platform, this company, this fund. I think in general, we need to see more Black female fund managers. I am very very passionate about helping my female founders. They're like my favorites in my portfolio because they face a lot of biases across the board. It's not just about getting capital. It's about running your business. It's about hiring people. It's about competing with others in the ecosystem who are getting the benefit of capital and other things. And so it's about while you're sort of a black female fund manager and you're sort of a unicorn you are also attracting and building other unicorns, other Black female founders who can become successful just by you being there and by you sort of setting the example. So that's what it's about. I also like the fact that whenever I set up calls with founders, life is a self-fulfilling prophecy. Whenever I set up calls with founders, they sometimes in the beginning of the call, they're like, I want to be a unicorn. So that's why I'm talking to you. <laughs> I love it. And I'm like, I love okay, it. that's not necessarily the goal, but sure. <laughs> I love it. It's like the name could be defined in so many ways to your point about being a female Black funding partner and focusing on a market that's quite unique and doesn't really have that many unicorns to date. But it's like you're already manifesting on behalf of, of the market that you're focusing on right now to actually help grow and scale the different portfolios. 
I love the name, which is why I'm like, I needed to ask you where that came from. And I wanted to get your perspective. An interesting thing that you mentioned earlier was that you have a bit of a passion for supporting women founders and not just for capital, but just various reasons that they need more support in it due to some of the challenges that they face. And, and so when you're identifying some of the different founders you're working with, I'm curious to know, what are some of the verticals you target when investing in these fintech startups and, and how do you identify them as well? Obviously, women founders is clearly a passion of yours that is a mutual passion of mine as well. But I'm curious to know, how do you look at it? On the broader scheme of things? Our criteria is very clear and it's not, a, it's, I don't look at female founders as a criteria, but I get what your question is. Criteria is more about what I've always been very focused on in terms of what activates this digital economy, which is infrastructure. So the number one criteria for us is what is the uniqueness of this infrastructure that you're building? And that comes in the form of what is your unfair advantage? Are you a category leader in your space? Are you a first mover? What is the nature of the inherent value you're creating with the infrastructure you've built for this digital economy? So that's number one. And we can sift out a lot of players really on that one criteria, because especially in fintech, a lot of people kind of stitch things together versus actually solve the underlying problems. And we like companies that are really solving really hard, challenging problems. And they require a lot of not just capital, but a lot of technical expertise, a lot of really strong understanding of your market and a clear go-to-market strategy around how you're going to deliver and a clear advantage to some extent, right? Whether it's a regulatory advantage or a clear customer advantage or a technology advantage, but there has to be something that makes you unique and different. So that's the number one thing we look for. The second thing, obviously, is the founding team, right? We really like founders that have really strong, unique industry expertise in their domain and what they're doing. Because we look, and we'll talk, I can talk about specifically like the categories of fintech companies we look at, but fundamentally, we look at fintech as a horizontal, not a vertical. We believe that fintech is infrastructure can be applied to so many different sectors of the economy. And we believe you can build fintech infrastructure for specific sectors on top of fintech infrastructure for the building as the building blocks of financial services, whether it's payments, credit, insurance, all the different financial services infrastructure that is necessary. But we believe that we need founders who understand those domains really well and can really innovate in those domains. So that expertise is really important. Founder market fit to some extent is what we look for. And the third is really the viability of these companies. And I think that's something that now that the market has gone haywire, people are actually focusing on viability, sustainability. What are your economics? How have you built this platform to actually be able to scale? What is the plan around your go-to-market? Is it an expensive plan to acquire customers or is it a plan that can easily be achievable and get to profitability? So we really look at the underlying business model around how the company is actually going to be sustainable and viable going forward. Those are the three key things that we look for in startups when we're selecting them. Cool. So it's uniqueness, the founding team, and obviously viability. You mentioned there's some categories that you tend to focus on at just high level. What are some of the categories? Yeah. yeah. So the three key things for us are one is just infrastructure, right? That can be embeddable in as many places. So API first, infrastructure, blockchain, Web3, DeFi infrastructure that can be embeddable into different platforms. So 
anyone who's building something that other startups, other companies can use to sort of enable DeFi or enable financial services is the first key category. Usually those are like the building blocks that I mentioned. The second is what we call like embedded DeFi, embedded finance, where we look at different verticals, vertical SaaS platforms, Web3-based platforms, GameFi, ReFi, NFTs, Metaverse, marketplaces, just a broad spectrum of different sort of verticals, agriculture, logistics. We look at how DeFi is being used or finance and fintech is being used within those verticals. And we look at the uniqueness of that infrastructure and how that infrastructure can actually really make whatever that vertical is become really scalable and big. So if it's an NFT platform, but the infrastructure that you've created can enable more people within that industry to leverage NFTs or things like that. Same thing with the logistics space, we're seeing a lot of embedded fintech and lots of DeFi activity going into different verticals and financing different transactions. That's an interesting place for us to look at. And then third is just more B2C type approaches. So the first two are usually, a lot of it are B2B, B2B, B2C type of plays. And then this third is more B2C, where we're seeing founders build companies that are essentially just whether it's web to crypto native digital platforms in different sectors, but are just directly going to the consumer and giving them a better experience, better options, unlike the traditional finance space that we're seeing. So those are the three categories. Got it. So Barbara, I would like us to maybe set the tone for our listeners and perhaps help them understand some of the dynamics of investing in Africa. What are some of the misconceptions about investing on the continent? Because I'm sure there's so many. Misconceptions, I would say a couple of things around that. And I think misconceptions generally are just lack of people just taking the time to really understand what's going on in the continent. And because it's just a big continent, right? And Africa is not one country, it's a continent. And I think that makes it harder for people to understand. So what's going on in Kenya is very different from what's going on in Nigeria versus South Africa versus Francophone versus North Africa. And I think because of all of that, it just makes people try to simplify things in their head. And that simplification in itself is a problem. So I think one is just the perception of risk. I think risk depends on where you're talking about, what you're talking about, right? Political risk, legal risk, corruption, all these different types of risks that I think are just overblown. And compared to other parts of the world, there's no sort of inherent difference in Africa. And I think that's overly placed. And I think it makes it hard for people to think that they'll get their money back. They can trust the founders and the individuals managing these companies. I think all of that perception of risk flows into people's ability to write checks into Africa. That's a big one. The other things I would say are because there hasn't been, and this is more, that's more macro. and This is more sort of micro into the venture capital ecosystem. Because there hasn't been as many exits, right? Like we haven't seen a big Facebook type exit or right, right. You know, coming out of Africa. I think people just naturally say, okay, we haven't seen that. So the ecosystem doesn't exist. And I don't think people are giving Africa a chance, right? In order to get that type of exit, you have to put capital in the country. You have to back these companies and get them to a point where they can deliver these exits. Latin America, I think, is a great example of what happens in the last two, three years when you have people like SoftBank 
deciding to put billions of dollars in that continent. And what do you get? You get unicorns and you get exits. And we haven't had that in Africa. The funding landscape is still small compared to the rest of the world. Last year, 2021, it was like about $4.7 billion of funding, which is really small compared to 20, 30 billion in Brazil and other countries. And so the lack of exits from that perspective, there are exits happening, secondary exits, unicorns are being built, as you can imagine, Chippecat, Flutter Wave, all these different unicorns, but they haven't been that big exit that people expect. And that has hampered people's ability to believe in the potential of the, the ecosystem. And so that's a big misconception is that Africa can produce exits and we can. We need the capital and we need more investors betting on the continent. Barbara, I read a couple of articles about your point of view around just the future of fintech, and you've been quite vocal about building the future of fintech at the intersection of TradeFi and DeFi. Can you perhaps break down what you mean by that? Fundamentally, to drive crypto adoption, we do need to see a bridge between TradeFi and DeFi. We do need to converge the two. We need to bring the mainstream into the crypto world to get that crypto adoption and to get the benefits of crypto, frankly, because it's a self-fulfilling sort of ecosystem. The more liquidity, the more yield, the more value all these digital assets accrue to people, and it becomes sort of a circular thing. And so we need to figure out how to bring TradFi involved. So that's a key part of our thesis. We invest in companies that are doing a really good job bringing people from the mainstream into the crypto world. We invest in a company called FunBank, for example, that helps people convert airtime to crypto. So it's like taking all these mobile users in Africa and emerging markets and getting them to come into the crypto world through the FunBank platform. That's a great example of this on-ramp platform bringing in people who are using fiat and airtime and bringing them into the crypto world. We have to invest in these companies if we want this crypto and DeFi opportunity to actually accrue to the masses. And that's what I mean by the intersection of TradFi and DeFi. Gotcha. That's an interesting use case. So you're saying a mobile money or mobile wallet provider to potentially convert their mobile money in crypto is a use case that you're seeing. I've never heard that use case. So that's pretty interesting. Yeah, the company is called FunBank. And they are helping people who have airtime convert that airtime into digital currency. And there are other examples of other companies that can bridge the gap. A great example as well is a company called AppZone, which is a blockchain payments platform in Nigeria. What they've done is they've brought a bunch of banks in Nigeria to connect to their platform so that they can sort of make transactions directly without going through a central switch. What that does is create a lot of reliability for them because going through a central switch creates a bottleneck and a lot right. of issues with reliability. But with this decentralized platform, banks are interacting with themselves through the blockchain and making transactions. And they're able to reconcile these trends. Obviously, the reconciliation becomes easier and it becomes much more cost effective. And it's the first regulated blockchain payments platform in Nigeria. So it's a great example of bringing TradFi, which are all the banks, into DeFi, into a blockchain platform. And the next phase for them is to sort of use a settlement native token to essentially settle some of these transactions, not right now through fiat, but going forward through a settlement digital currency. 
that can take settlement to the next level for a lot of these banks. These banks are also Pan-African banks, so there can also be that opportunity of moving these transactions that are Pan-African onto the blockchain and making transactions between different countries in Africa borderless, seamless, and instant from a payment perspective. And these, by the way, these things are still an issue in Africa, right? Payments, the fragmentation of it, the fact that it's not instant, but that it's still really expensive across these different countries is still an issue. So using the blockchain and bringing TradFi into DeFi to solve some of these key problems around payments is a huge opportunity. And that's what I mean by we have to be investing in the intersection of TradFi, DeFi, because we want to make this a big, scalable concept and solve real-world problems. Yeah. You mentioned how, you know, DeFi and Web3 are key areas for you guys to invest in from your funds perspective. Why do you think Africa has the most worthwhile opportunity in the space? Because obviously it's a it's a hot potato. Everybody's talking about different versions of DeFi and Web3 and, and blockchain technology and how that's applicable in different verticals within fintech. And I think it's an interesting point of view to say that it's definitely a worthwhile opportunity specifically on the continent and there's room for business there. Why do you think there's a, a ripe opportunity in that market? Is it because of some of the infrastructure plays or fragmentations you mentioned earlier? Yeah. I'm curious to get your view. Yeah, sure. I think just to take a step back philosophically, right? I say this all the time that I feel like cryptocurrency was literally made for the African continent. If you think about one, Africa has been a mobile driven continent for a while before a lot of people were doing mobile payments. Africans were doing that. And it's been a continent where people are used to using mobile payments. People are used to transacting through their mobile phones and digitally. And also, Africa has been a very community-driven continent where you have a lot of these community organizations being a place where people can get access to financial services, where they're putting money in a pot and everyone shares in the gains of that pot. DeFi, in a way, is an extension of that. DeFi is a scalable concept of sort of community-driven finance. How do we ensure that everyone gets ownership in the pie? How do we ensure that people can transact in a frictionless way amongst each other? And how do we ensure that there's transparency across all of these people? That's essentially philosophically what DeFi is about, what decentralization is doing in financial services. And that's been happening in communities in Africa. So that's why I strongly believe in DeFi and how DeFi can take what African communities have been doing amongst each other and make it scalable and bring all the benefits of what they've been doing, getting access to ownership, getting access to capital, transaction in a frictionless way through these DeFi platforms. So that's philosophically where I am with DeFi and the African continent. But the fundamental problems and institutional voids that cryptocurrency solve for the average person in the continent is one, Africa constantly is facing a lot of certain countries, especially more than others, a devaluation issue. These local currencies are really strongly punitive to people who hold them. And so crypto is a really good alternative form of storing value for people. And two is sort of the liquidity of these currencies. It's hard to trade them, right? So you can create all these crypto opportunities using stable coins, Bitcoin, synthetic effects, different forms of things that you're leveraging the blockchain to make it easier for people to use and trade these currencies. And then also there is still a lot of friction around transferring money across different borders. Crypto does that easy. 
the whole point of crypto is that it can be transferred in a frictionless way. And that is this transferring money across different borders, across different countries in Africa. It has fundamentally prevented Africa from really unleashing its full economic potential because it's been it's still very difficult to make these transactions happen across different borders, inter-Africa or and outside of Africa. And then also just investment options and yield is still a significant problem. And crypto gives an alternative to getting access to yield for a lot of people. So I think these institutional voids that occur in Africa, crypto solves it for a lot of Africans. And that's why we're seeing over 40 million users of crypto coming out of Africa and more actually that are not being recorded, that are using that crypto informally, because these are key voids that still exist in the market. I know you don't have a crystal ball, Barbara, but if you had to have a crystal ball in front of you, what is your prediction for startups and Web3 infrastructure in the next three to five years pertaining to fintech on the continent? For me, I believe that there will be some form of Web3 infrastructure across every major financial services or fintech or any major platform that's providing financial infrastructure. I think there'll be a Web3 component in the next two to five years. It's inevitable how this technology is going to be important in some of these platforms. And we're going to see any big company that comes out in the next two to five years will leverage this technology in some way, shape or form. So yeah, that's what I think. And we're seeing that with some of our companies who they're targeting. A lot of these crypto, and like I said, we focus a lot on the B2B, B2B2C. A lot of these crypto platforms are working with a lot of Web2 companies and helping them embed crypto and embed DeFi. And I think we're going to see a lot of mainstream companies start leveraging the benefits of crypto and DeFi in the next two to five years. Very cool. Well, Barbara... We have reached the end of our conversation. Thank you so much for joining. Where can people find you and I will learn more about Unicorn Growth Capital? My website is www.unicorngrowthcap.com. I'm also on LinkedIn, Barbara EIE. So you can reach me. Thank you so much for joining, Barbara. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to subscribe to the show. And while you're there, please feel free to leave a review and rating. To learn more about how AWS supports startups, please visit aws.amazon.com slash startups.